Open your hearts, you championship Brendas. Let in the winds of Leitrim. What is the fucking crack? How are you getting on? It is August 1st. It's podcast number 43. And the World Cup is over. And Love Island is not no longer on television. It's finished. So I think though they're two signifiers that were slowly getting back into reality. You know, summer is silly season. And do you know what, what's missing as well? I stuck my nose out tonight. And that the youthful dew of summer was no longer present on the evening's essence. Which is sad, because it's, you know, it ushers in a bit of winter. But, do you know that lovely fucking... That summer's evening smell, you know, that you can't quantify it. It's... It's it's just teenage flowers and teenage trees. It's fucking foliage at its peak. And flowers giving off its smell. But now we're into August. So, you know, it's it's starting to... The foliage is kind of... I won't say the foliage is getting old, but the foliage is definitely fucking thinking about leaving its wife and buying a Ferrari, you know? Gone a little bit bleak. And it will soon crumble and die and return to the earth. Um. So, what happened last week? Oh, fucking hell, yeah, last week. Last week I got shit-faced drunk and couldn't give you a proper podcast. But most of you really enjoyed it, which was great, because I woke up the next morning with the fucking fear. I swear to fuck, I woke up the next morning going, what the fuck did I put out in that podcast? Terrified. Because I was mouldy. Now, I know I didn't come across as that drunk. That's from years, years and years and years of, you know, honing my ability of bush drinking as a teenager and pretending to my ma that I'm sober. So I had to drag that skill into me last week when I was doing the podcast. But I was fucking mouldy, lads. So when I woke up the next morning, I was like, fuck, what did I say? You know? Did I go alt-right in my drunken state? Um, but no, it was grand. I listened back and wasn't too bad. And you seemed to enjoy it. And there was a wonderful interview with the brilliant author Louise O'Neill. Which I thoroughly enjoyed listening back to. Because I forgot how much crack that was. It was uh, was actually a lovely room. So. Yeah. Fucking. Something mad happened this weekend then. I had a sold out live podcast. In the Ivy Gardens. In Dublin. And. Something. Sudden. And unavoidable happened in my personal life. I can't go into it. But this caused me to cancel the gig at the last minute. I'm grand, don't be worrying about me. But it was a gig cancelling incident. I'm gigging fucking 12 years. I've never missed a gig. This is the first time it happened, you know. Shit happens. But uh, thank you to... Luckily it was at the Vodafone Comedy Festival. So a bunch of you turned up. And a lot of very sound comedians were at hand. Fucking Addison Spittle, Neil Hamburger, Jarla Regan, David O'Doherty. They filled in my slot. 
So the audience members got a star-studded lineup of the cream of Irish comedy instead of uh, my live podcast. And the ones who didn't want that were entitled to a full refund. But again, sorry for letting you down like that. But you know, I wouldn't fucking do it if it it was unavoidable. All right, shit happens. First time in about ten or twelve years that this has happened, but it did. I'm back in Dublin for a live podcast in Vicker Street in October, um, which is almost sold out now. I think there's about 600 tickets sold for that, but there's a few hundred left. So if you want to see me, that'll be the shtick. I don't know who my guest is yet. Um, over the next couple of weeks, I'm privately interviewing two pretty fucking famous people. I'm interviewing one person, can't say who they are, but they're so ridiculously stupidly famous they have no business being interviewed on Irish soil or any Irish fucking medium let alone my podcast I don't know how I'm after scoring this one but I'll keep you in the loop you delicious gorgeous cunts so in last week's podcast I promised you that I was going to do an episode that connected a jacket to a Nazi eugenics program and I am going to do that Um, I'm going to get into that in a while but because a week has passed, there's just some other shit I want to talk about. Um, one thing in particular. I posted a tweet today about something that we're all kind of familiar with, but the scale of responses that I got for it were pretty fucking shocking. I said, Dublin is going to lose its creative class. I've no idea how anyone on the erratic earnings of a self-employed artist of any description is paying for rent. Me staying in Limerick all these years isn't just stubborn parochialism. And what I'm referring to there is just... Like, rent all over Ireland is pretty bad. Rent in Dublin is fucking absurd. It is ridiculous, right? Exceptionally high. I mean, every week a property goes viral because it's a fucking cupboard for 1,200 quid. Do you know? The shit that's happening in London... But it's really happening quite badly in Dublin. And I'm an artist. So, like, I, I've been... That's all I've been doing since I was fucking 14, 15. I'm, I'm a professional fucking artist. So the thing about being a professional artist is... There's no such thing as a steady income. Do you know? And I think as well, as a society... We are kind of coming around to the fact, too, that... Just because someone has a million followers on fucking Facebook or Twitter doesn't mean they're necessarily floating in money, do you know? Um, about 10% of the artists that you like are wealthy and the rest are just getting by, you know? Um, and my tweet was inspired by... There's an Irish singer-songwriter, David Kitt, who's a bit of a legend. Like, David Kitt was around when I was in fucking school and he's still gone. And he's a Dublin-based electronic artist. And he's one of these fellas who's just... You know, if you listen to his stuff, you know that he's he's never really compromised. He's always made the music that feels right to him inside and put it out and done the gigs and worked hard. And I don't think he's the type of person who ever expected to become mad wealthy from making music just to earn a living, which is... That's the, you know, that's the least you can expect if you're a professional artist. But David Kidd posted on Facebook that, you know, he's a Dublin native who is now having to look at emigrating, you know, either somewhere else in Ireland 
that's cheap or getting the fuck out of Ireland altogether to another place where he can afford to be an artist. And it's not just David Kidd as well, you know. I mean, we started off kind of professionally gigging around 2007. And 90% of the acts that would have been sharing bills with us in 2007, you know, the bands that were coming out making music, they're all gone. And it's not because they were shit. I've just slowly watched them, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015, slowly make announcements on their Facebook page going, how are you getting on? We love making music, uh, but we just can't earn money anymore. Partly because of the internet too, you know, you can't, you're not, you're not making money from record sales. You got a gig and if you're gigging only in Ireland, that's, there's not a lot of gigs to sustain a living, especially with a fucking band. Um, so a lot of acts are in that situation, but I just had to give up on their creativity and go and find jobs somewhere else. And I often kind of scratch my head and wonder how the fuck I'm still going. I think the reason is, is first off, there's only two of us for the bandits. That's handy. But we're just both lucky in that we're, we're creative across multiple disciplines. So we didn't have to do just music you know i'm if i can turn my hand to fucking writing books uh writing television whatever the fuck i want i'm just lucky in that way and mr chrome is the same you know like our fucking music videos make the music ourselves write the song ourselves produce the music uh shoot the video ourselves mr chrome does special effects he can make fucking puppets and shit like that so we can Make a music video that looks like it's worth 10 grand for 500 quid. Just by pooling our separate abilities together. So the Rubber Bandits is quite cost effective and it always has been. So that's kept us kind of tipping over over the years. But, you know, other fucking acts have just had to give up. And it's really sad because they're not giving up for the right reasons. It's not because they want to stop creating or because they fight with each other. It's because it is no longer an economically viable model. So yeah, I posted a status or a tweet about Dublin losing its creative people. It's ridiculous and it got a lot of people talking and I'll just read out some of the like the responses I got on Twitter. Like Melanie Murphy, she's a YouTuber. Loads and loads of views. She's got a book out. And she says, I still rent with my dad and brother, I'm 29 soon. It's beyond a joke and I work my haul off and several creative jobs at, the, at a time. Pete Slattery says, I work in animation and the biggest problem facing the people I work with is accommodation. It's hard enough to find employees as it is, but when you factor in the cost of living, the industry can't sustain the current situation. Anthea says, the only reason I'm able to stay in Dublin and keep creating comics is by staying in my childhood home. So like, this is the crack, this is the reality. And... Like, again, like I said, I'm coming at it from an artist's perspective because that's what I know. But, like, a lot of people shit on art and creativity and go, sure, what's the point? Like, it's essential. That's the... Art and creativity is... It benefits the collective mental health. You have to have ingenuity. You have to have people out there doing weird shit, if only to start conversations. I mean, it is a... the 
benefit of art and creativity isn't particularly tangible because in today's society we tend to value things from a monetary perspective exclusively. But art, creativity, fucking theatre, music, graphic design, whatever the fuck you want, you know, these things uh, colour in the spaces of our lives and create the ambience. Do you know what I mean? I think I've quoted this... I think I've said this before, but like... I'm quoting the great Count Winston Churchill because it's a lovely quote by him. Um, during World War Two, someone went to Churchill and said, look, the fucking Nazis are bombing the shit out of the place. We need money for the war. Can we close down all the galleries and museums to fund the war effort? And Churchill goes, then what are we fighting for? You know, that's the importance of art and creativity. But, like, here's the mad thing. Like, You've got artists, creative people, emigrating from fucking Ireland, not because there's a recession, right? There's plenty of opportunity, there's loads of massive fucking investment. But the reason they're emigrating is because of this investment. Do you know? Tech firms. Ireland's got a lot of tech firms because of our incredibly low corporation tax. Tech firms are coming in, buying a lot of property, pushing up the rent... Um, on top of that, there's no regulation on the renting market, so you can push things up as much as you want. Airbnb is riding Dublin up the hole without a condom. And it is creating an unsustainable market where... Like, I don't know who the fuck is living in Dublin. I honestly don't know. I don't know who owns shit, unless they're seriously wealthy. But... What it does too, as well, is it, like, it creates... Um, in Ireland, there's this ancient concept of the pale, right? When the when the Brits came over here, they solidified an area around Dublin, out into parts of fucking... Not Maynooth. Where's that place near Dublin where people fr- per- pretend they're from Dublin? Kildare, right? So out as far as Dublin and Kildare, the Brits always had a stronghold there and they referred to it as the pale. And anything outside that was known as beyond the pale. That's why you have that phrase, oh, that's beyond the pale. That's an old colonial word to refer to savagery. But the pale was traditionally a a prosperous area containing Dublin and fucking Kildare in Ireland. Where the British uh, Protestant descendancy traditionally lived. And it, with the exception of, you know, the incredibly poor working class areas, it, it generally had a degree of prosperity because it was protected. And then the extreme fucking third world Irish poverty was outside the pale. This Dublin bullshit that we're seeing now, it is in danger of creating a new pale. Because, like, aside from creative people, just anyone trying to get a fucking job up in Dublin, culties, like me, what's happening is that native Dublin people are able to have a job in Dublin and and live with their parents and as a result of that possibly, if they're earning enough, save up to eventually buy a property, which means you create a a class in Dublin of richer people who own property then the Colchies who can't really find jobs in Limerick, we'll say, or in fucking Leitrim, they have to move to Dublin to find a job but can't live with their man da, so all their money goes on rent. So you're reinstating the fucking pale. 
you know what I mean? But back to the art and creativity. Ireland is is traditionally art is our fucking thing. Okay? In particular in we'll say in, in literature. That's our main cultural artistic export. Like for the size of us, for a country of 4 million people, our impact on global literature is unprecedented. Like if you look at we'll say Brazil and soccer you know the way Brazil is there and it's like they're just ridiculously good at soccer and they have so many World Cups. That's Ireland with literature. And we're tiny. That's our cultural fucking legacy. Mainly from a kind of a, a post-colonial point of view. We, we took, you know, English, the English language was forced upon us and it didn't fit with Gaelic grammatical structures. So we have Hiberno-English. So Irish literature is, by its very core, is an act of resistance to the English language. And as a result of that, you have a great fluidity and creativity. You'll, you'll see this in fucking, I don't know, James Joyce, Flann O'Brien, the odd bit of Beckett, you know? But we've got these towering literary figures that define our cultural fucking identity in the world. And the current economic situation is turning its back and preserving fucking artists and it's a bit ridiculous like I lived in Dublin for two years straight after Horse Outside and I had to get the fuck out because here is the crucial thing about if, if you if you're an artist and you want to succeed in your own art now success doesn't create creatively success doesn't necessarily mean earning a lot of money or being popular success in art means are you truly creating from your heart? Is the art that you create what you would like to see if you weren't you? That's fucking success in art. In order to do that, you need to be able to fail. Failure, I've said it many times before, failure is an essential facet to creativity. You must encourage failure. You must fail as much as humanly fucking possible so that you can truly find your voice and when failure is, when you're afraid to fail, then you become stifled. And when you're stifled, you're anxious. And art doesn't come from a place of anxiety. Art does not come from a place of being threatened. Art comes from freedom. You know, art and creativity is intelligence having fun. That's what it is. And it must be a free and playful environment. You can't have a free fucking playful environment if your art fucking if you need to come up with 1200 quid a month to pay for fucking rent in Dublin that's what I was doing after Horse Outside I had no freedom to fail I had no freedom to test my own creative boundaries and as well I've said before after Horse Outside I hated that level of um, fame so we deliberately wanted to stick our two fingers up to the audience that we had and say fuck you we want to do something different I couldn't do that until I moved back to Limerick though because up in Dublin, rent had to be fucking paid. And songs like I Like to Shift Girls were written, which I'm not really mad about, because it was written specifically to appease a horse outside audience. But only when I got down to Limerick could I write Spastic Hawk, because in Limerick, in 2011, when that was, at the height of the recession, rent was non-existent. You could live anywhere in Limerick for absolutely fucking nothing. So that allowed me to fail and not have to worry too much about 
earning ridiculous money, just enough to get by. So the government in the country is kind of turning its back on the creative class and isn't valuing the importance of creativity and ingenuity in our culture, which is absurd. 70%, I think, of the elected representatives in Ireland are themselves landlords. So is it in their interest to do something about the renting crisis? Now, I'm conscious, too, of how ridiculously privileged it sounds to be complaining about poor old artists can't afford to fucking do their craft because the blade's edge of this fucking housing crisis is people actually fucking dying from homelessness, which is obviously more important, but I want to speak about all aspects of it, and again, from personal experience. Do you know? Thank fuck I don't have personal experience of homelessness. I do have personal experience of being unable to create because the wolf is consistently at the door and how that stifles creativity. Maybe the government will listen if you frame it in terms of entrepreneurship. You know, entrepreneurship is a form of creativity. How are you going to have fucking entrepreneurs in the economy if they can't afford to take risks? I mean, what possible solutions are there, we'll say, from the artists to deal with the... the, the artist situation I can think of one example which is a pretty class idea and it's from New York in the 70s um, which is quite strange because it's a very socialistic model to come out of the Yanks but New York in the 70s is very similar to Dublin today actually you know like in that it was it, it was this big city but it's a bit of a shithole like Times Square in the 70s was open fucking drug use and uh, sex workers and homelessness like it was not a pleasant place it's hard to look back and think like Times Square now is fucking clean and unbelievably expensive and there's barely any you, you know you'd be hard pressed to find crime or homelessness anywhere in New York's centre you have to go up as far as the Bronx or over to Staten Island for that shit but in the 70s New York was a shithole and you know, Times Square was basically O'Connell Street in Dublin. O'Connell Street in Dublin, our main fucking street, is not pleasant, especially at night time. It is not safe. It's, uh, for any fucking tourists coming over, it must be shocking. But anyway, in the 70s in New York, they built this subsidised block of flats for only for artists. It was in 1977 called Manhattan Plaza. And what it was for but it was mainly I think it was for the performing arts for actors a lot of actors lived there but it was just simply a block of flats where people in the creative industry young people in particular well no I don't think even age mattered people who were trying to make their living from writing or painting or being actors were able to apply for housing in Manhattan Plaza and they got a simple flat and didn't really have to worry about rent because it was subsidised and it was cheap which allowed them to then take the necessary creative risks and to fail over and over so that they could find their unique creative voice like Seinfeld you know Larry David who wrote Seinfeld he lived in Manhattan Plaza in the 70s and the apartment that Seinfeld is set in is based on Larry David's apartment in Manhattan Plaza 
He even had a neighbour right across the way called Kramer, you know. And there's a load of other fucking Mickey Rourke lived in Manhattan Plaza, Angela Lansbury, Samuel L. Jackson, Al Pacino. These massively successful, iconic fucking artists, writers, lived in subsidised rent as artists in this one creative block, this hub, Manhattan Plaza, where all they had to worry about was being the best version of themselves creatively, not keeping the fucking wolf from the door. But I don't know, is that a solution? I'm just a lad with a podcast, I'm not sure. Talking into a sock on my own. But if you are a Dublin artist, or anywhere else in Ireland where it's just like, I cannot... I cannot afford rent and I want to be and I have a look at Limerick at least not too many of you know because I don't want to fucking gentrify Limerick with a lot of dubs but Limerick's not cheap Limerick is probably the cheapest rent in Ireland it's definitely one in the in the bottom three of the cheapest rents in Ireland Um, that doesn't mean it's cheap it's still pretty fucking bad you know but by Dublin standards it's there, there's no no comparison but have a look at Limerick because it's a good crack down here just stand around all the time looking at an otter no but Limerick, Limerick is a good buzz we've got a lot of empty spaces we've got Troy Studios which is a new film studios um, and we've got the art college LSAD fucking class art college and just a good buzz. See, I'm paranoid now. I'm after inspiring a lot of Dublin cons to move to Limerick. And gentrifying. Um, okay, if you're if you are a Dublin artist and you want to move to Limerick, you have to earn every letter of your name through a various collection of dares. So if your name is Peter, you know, you have for the letter P, you have to piss on the mayor's shoes and then for the letter E you have to eat 300 communion wafers and then for T you have to tattoo Macaulay Culkin getting kicked out of the UVF on your calf and then for the other E you have to engineer a design for a bicycle that an ostrich could cycle on which would be very fucking strange because they've got their kneeca- kneecaps on the backs of their legs. And then finally for, for R, you have to race a Jack Russell down the hill of Tara and only by completing pre-assigned tasks corresponding to the letters of your name may you apply to fucking live in Limerick. And that will allow you to move from Dublin but not to fully gentrify it. Okay. Right, 24 minutes fucking in. And I've been meaning to talk about this, the hot take about the jacket and fascism and Nazi eugenics. Do you remember when this podcast used to have structure? Do you remember I'd talk about something for a while, then I'd read out drunk tweets uh, by your drunk limerick aunt, Donald Trump's tweets. And now I'm just, I'm after getting... After getting too comfortable with ranting, and before you know it, I just look at the fucking 
at the timer and the podcast is over and I'm after talking about shit for a full fucking hour and there's no time for nothing. Right, this fucking jacket, anyway. Okay, it's a week late, but... Conor McGregor's father, Tony, posted a video on YouTube speaking about his jacket. And it was the talk of Ireland for a while because it was just absurd and irritating. I'll play it for you now. This is Conor McGregor's father, Tony. And Conor, I know you listen to the podcast. All right? We established that a few weeks ago. But i got to speak on this. Okay, everybody. Good evening. Uh, i just let you know about my uh, travel experience on the DART this afternoon. That's the rail system that Dublin City operates. It's called the Dublin Area Ra- Rapid Transport, something like that, D-A-R-T. That's what it stands for. Anyway, I was none too plussed with my experience on the DART. Uh, when I got to Lansdowne Road Station, uh, I tendered a brand new crisp 20 euro note into the automatic machine looking for a single ticket to Dunleary. They had the bloody cheek to uh, give me back, and I'm going to show you this uh, coinage 20 euros, 1730, and a miserable little one way ticket. They, they gave me all that coinage. Um, I have no room to put, to put those coins anywhere. I wear a slim fit, hand fitted Hugo Boss suit. Ah, God bless us and save us, Tony. What are you at? So, yeah, everyone was talking about that because it's so silly. Um, Mainly because, you know, he's a grown man. He's a grown man. He's in his 50s, you know. And that rant about the coins and the trains. Tony, you just wanted to tell us about your Hugo Boss jacket, man, didn't you? And instead... It was a bang of Cruella de Vil off it, like, or something. It's like... People are rooting for the McGregors. Do you know what? They're from Crumlin. You know, Tony, Tony's a fucking... I think he was a plumber, you know? From Crumlin. Working class man, working hard all his life. You know, to keep put food on the table. And then... Gets a bit of money from Connor's success, and... Is kind of... Bragging about it a bit, you know? No, no sign of humility. And people don't like people don't like it when people aren't aren't humble. But like he could have still shown off his Hugo Boss jacket and shown kind of gratitude for it and shown, look at me now, I've got a Hugo Boss jacket, isn't it nice on me? And the whole country would have said, Fair play, Tony, I'm glad you've got that jacket. But instead he went down a just a kind of a foolish, foolish route. But it got me thinking. And it got me into a strange old YouTube hole that has nothing to do with Tony McGregor whatsoever. Um, it reminded me about Hugo fucking Boss. And just, I suppose, how something bizarre, I suppose in today's climate, whereby we expect so much of our brands and celebrities and corporations, you know, um, in the context, like... James Gunn, their director of Guardians of the Galaxies, you know, getting fired from his fucking job because he made some bad taste, silly paedophile jokes in 2009. But, like, how many brands today have tainted history? And Hugo Boss, 
Like the man himself, Hugo fucking boss, who the company was founded on, they didn't even change the name, was an active Nazi for Hitler, right? Hugo Boss made and designed all the uniforms for the Nazi party and the SS. And it wasn't like, oh, poor old Hugo Boss, Hitler's taking power, he's got no choice. Like, Hugo Boss was an actual fucking Nazi. He went to the Nazis and said, I like what you're doing, lads, but I think he could do it in a more stylish fashion. So he was an avowed Nazi up until the day of his fucking death. And they didn't think to change his name from the company. Like, what the fuck is that? They're still making jackets. For Conor McGregor's da. Who else? IBM. Like, IBM... Again, like... It wasn't just like... Oh, we better cooperate with the Nazis. IBM made early computers... For the Holocaust, like... They made uh, technology for the Nazis to identify Jews or whoever was going to be exterminated and to make transport and extermination efficient. And they were they were called IBM. And they're still called IBM today. Um, who else have we got? Volkswagen. Like, Volkswagen wasn't a, a private company that collaborated with the Nazis. Volkswagen was created by the Nazis. It was a state-run company set up by Hitler because kind of what Hitler did because you get these fucking alt-right shitheads who talk about they're ap- they apologise the biggest edgelord comment you'll see online is say what you want about the Nazis but they were very efficient you know he really repaired the economy um, which is a bullshit fucking statement because what Hitler did is he invaded the likes of Poland and all the countries around, stripped resources from those countries and then brought an influx of that money into the German economy and then it prospered as a result because he robbed it. That's not good economics. It's just robbing money from other countries and using it to make your own country class. Like, that. that's, that's not something to be applauded. But Hitler's big thing was building roads... The fucking first motorways were built by Hitler, built by the Nazis. To, I don't know what the, I don't know why. I think he just wanted an efficient, machinated people. But the the roads were also built for, wherever there was a an autobahn in the country, a, a military plane could also land on it. I think that was it was to create runways too. But Hitler set up a Volkswagen, which means wagon of the people, and. Legend has it, probably bullshit, but legend has it that Hitler designed the Volkswagen Beetle personally and based it around the design of an egg. But again, Volkswagen, still out there, doing their thing, still called Volkswagen, invented by the Nazis. Coca-Cola. Now, Coca-Cola wasn't German, they were American. They were just opportunistic cunts. Um, they, the Nazis got a, got a fondness for Coke. So the Yanks started selling loads and loads of Coca-Cola to the Germans. They adored it. They bought loads and loads of it. This was 1937, so it wasn't... I don't think the Yanks were in World War II by then. But anyway, the fucking Nazis were drinking Coke. And then one day, some 
top Nazi looks at the Coke bottle cap and noticed on it there's tiny amount of Hebrew writing. And this indicated that Coca-Cola was kosher. So, of course, the Nazis freaked out because there's Hebrew writing on it. And we're like, fuck your Coke, America. We don't want this shitty brown drink. Piss off. But anyway, by 1940, the US had gotten involved in the war, World War II, against the Nazis. And didn't stop Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola were like, oh, fuck. The Germans can no longer import our brown Coca-Cola syrup. What are we going to do? So what uh, Coca-Cola did is they created a new brand specifically just for the Nazis made from uh, an accessible syrup made from orange because they had access to orange syrup in Germany. So Coca-Cola had a bit of a think and they started to rebrand. First of all, they rebranded Coca-Cola as very much pro-Nazi in Germany, uh, promoting Nazi ideology. And they went to the German word uh, for fantasy, meaning imagination. And they came up with this new orange drink and called it Fanta. So Fanta was actually created on the German name Fantasy to appeal to Nazis for a Nazi audience, Nazi consumers, while the US was fighting Hitler. They're still grand. I was drinking Fanta earlier. The Associated Press, massive American news agency, still rocking around today. They, um, I think what happened is when Hitler took power, the Nazis demanded that any news organization, they could no longer, they couldn't employ any Jewish people. So most news organizations were like, fuck this. They left Germany, but the Associated Press were like, no, I think we'll stick around and just fire a lot of Jews. So that's what they did. They're still gone. The most controversial of all, of course, is Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Still going today. They sell um, Baraka, Rennie, uh, what else? Claritin, Alka-Seltzer. They, I think they invented aspirin. But Bayer Pharmaceuticals, at the time, I think they were called IG Farben, or they were part of IG Farben. But Bayer were the ones who developed Zyklon B for the Nazis. And Zyklon B was the gas that was used to exterminate Jewish people and what was considered other undesirables. And they're still rocking. And I suppose it's, it's like, what are the rules around this stuff? Like, that's the thing with the the internet outrage it's like what are the rules what constitutes someone getting cancelled and from what I can see there appears to be like a time limit on it you know it's really strange like Spotify recently and they backtracked on it but like Spotify said you know artists that were accused of abuse that they would no longer platform them on any of their playlists. But it was really only artists with recent accusations, like Extentacion and fucking R. Kelly. But what about John Lennon? John Lennon was a wife-beater, you know? Or Mel Gibson's still working. Mel Gibson... There's evidence. Mel Gibson was a... Evidence of huge abuse towards his wife. 
if you listen to the tapes of him screaming and roaring at her and she made an allegation that I think she she made an allegation that he hit her while she was carrying her child but I remember when that news broke it's about 2008 and people didn't really the people who did give a shit their voices certainly weren't elevated they weren't loud people kind of laughed at it and thought oh crazy Mel but no one thought about the victim but Mel Gibson's still making films I just want to know what are the fucking rules it's weird what is the time limit for massive companies that were founded by the Nazis to still be okay one of the biggest of all is NASA and I know that sounds nuts but there was a post-war thing that they I think it was run by the CIA but it was called Operation Paperclip and when World War 2 ended and the Nazis lost there was a scramble to bring the remaining Nazis to justice via the Nuremberg Trials, which were international trials set up to make Nazi war criminals account for their crimes and be sentenced accordingly. And what Operation Paperclip was, it wasn't set up by the CIA actually, because the CIA hadn't been invented yet, but the equivalent of the CIA was the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency they did this secret operation called Operation Paperclip where the Nazi scientists that had worked on the V2 rockets um, the Nazis were the first ones to have rocket technology they had these weird rocket bombs called V2s that they used to fire at London in the later part of the war hugely inaccurate but rocket technology so the US government smuggled 1600 Nazi scientists, engineers who had worked on the rocket program brought them all over to America gave every one of them you know, brand new American identities erased their history let them live in the US and these people founded NASA these Nazi war criminals put a man on the moon under the American flag Um. I'm trying to see what I'm going to get at. What, what I want to speak about too is just... Just the, some of the mad shit that the Nazis did. And I'm not... Saying this stuff to... Normalise the Nazis. Or to make them humorous. Or to make them anecdotal. It's we're familiar with their utter brutality. But... Just to kind of paint them as... They were real lunatics like... Um, another bizarre story Joseph Mengele who was known as the angel of death he was I think he was a doctor scientist and a doctor and Hitler had put him in charge of, of creating the master Aryan race you know but he used to carry out human experiments in the death camps and he was Particularly, it's worth noting as well that none of his human experiments, as torturous as they were, none of his human experiments, um, nothing good came from them, no no new information came from them. They were pointless acts of fucking torture and dehumanisation. 
He was obsessed with twins. If when people lined up for the death camp, Mengele would stand in a perfectly white coat with white gloves and that's why they called him the angel of death and he'd stand with his arms out like an angel. If he saw a set of twins coming into a death camp, he had those twins put aside and would experiment on them because he was obsessed with twins. Um, kind of torturing them remotely and you know hurting one twin and seeing if the other one would feel it and shit like that. But Mengele was one of the lads who managed to escape the Nuremberg trials and he fucked off to South America but there's a village in Brazil I believe it is so this town in Brazil uh, Candido Godoy I think it's called it's got it's, this is the bizarre thing it's got one of the highest concentrations of twins in the world dating from the 60s specifically blonde haired blue eyed twins and it's very very odd it's very strange, alright? This is what it veers into conspiracy theory. It is a fact that there is a ridiculous amount of twins in this small town and they're blonde hair and blue-eyed. And we know that Joseph Mengele escaped and lived in South America. Some are saying that Mengele visited the town quite frequently in the 60s, started doing genetic experiments on pregnant women and tried to breed a race of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryans, and no one knows what the twin thing is, but the the twin thing is what connects it to Mengele because he was obsessed with fucking twins. The people living there today, like, pretty much accept that, yeah, Mengele was visiting us in the 60s, doing some mad shit. He told us that it was to prevent TB, but the town crest, like, it, it says, welcome to the land of the twins. And there's a little museum there about how many twins are in this fucking town. So how about that for utterly batshit? One thing with the Nazis, uh, Heinrich Himmler in particular, was the utter obsession with the uh, the pure this pure mythological Aryan race. And they had this fucking mad kind of bureau or department set up called the Anherbe and the shtick was is that you know they would f- the, the Nazi party funded this absolutely bizarre pseudo-scientific historical exhibitions for Nazi scientists and Nazi historians to travel the world like looking at any ancient civilization that appeared to be in any way advanced like they were obsessed with Tibet and to try and prove falsely why we'll say Tibetans were actually ovarian blood. Because they couldn't propagate the myth of Aryan perf- perfection if other civilizations who were not blonde hair and blue eyed appeared to be historically fucking advanced. So this department was set up to prove that. And they ended up spending a lot of money. Uh, in search for the Yeti and they wanted to find the Yeti because because it was like the, the Yeti is like a hominid half ape half human creature that mysteriously wanders around the Himalayas in Tibet and I think they wanted to find the Yeti to further some mad sci- pseudoscientific theory about human evolution 
I don't know, but they spent a lot of money find, trying to find the Yeti to no avail. Hitler spent a lot of money on creating children's television that was designed to brainwash German kids. Um, first of its kind, to be honest, but the plan was is to have extensive, extensive TV programming to... Once you had this race of young German Aryan children born, that you could feed into their heads from the earliest ages through children's television um, ideas about Aryan idealism and how they should be and how they should obey the Reich and all this shit. And not just straight, like, propaganda. Like, they were looking into literal mind control, hypnosis, putting people into trances, you know, controlling minds. Um, Hitler became obsessed with a 14th century Dutch painting called Adoration of the Mystic Lamb by Jan van Eyck, one of the Dutch masters, an incredible fucking painter. Um, Jan van Eyck would be... Most art historians would kind of credit him as being the first major painter to paint in oils um, around the 1400s. And this... It's a particularly bizarre camp painting. It's It's big green field and all these angels and bishops and then this sheep on an altar being worshipped Hitler was obsessed with this painting Hitler got it into his head that this painting was like a a world map for holy relics like the holy grail um, different artefacts around the world and Hitler thought that this painting by Jan van Eyck was a kind of an indication where you could find these artefacts around the world and once Hitler found these artefacts by using the painting as a map that they would offer the Nazis magical powers so of course he studied the fucking painting told everyone to go to the far reaches of the fucking earth searching for the holy grail and all of this shit utterly utter madness now some people will say it wasn't mad what they were doing is military kind of reconnaissance under the guise of mad historical or artistic programs but I don't think so they were lunatics and it wasn't just the holy grail that Hitler was obsessed with he he really wanted to find this thing called the spear of destiny which was it's a holy relic which is apparently the actual spear that the Romans used to pierce Christ's guts when he was hanging on the cross and Hitler wanted that spear. So one of the more fucked up crazy plans that had real life uh, human impact was a program known as the Liebensborn. Again, the obsession with the Aryan race and to create a master race of Aryans. Pure blonde hair, pure blue eyes, white skin. The Nazis were fascinated and enamoured with the Nordic peoples, people from Sweden and Norway because they're naturally blonde haired and blue eyed and tall they thought these were the true Aryans on on the earth so when Norway was occupied by the Germans and a lot of the men were off fighting they created what were known as the Nazi brides so the Nazis went around villages in Norway and found women that fit the Aryan description then forced them to marry German uh, Nazi soldiers who also were considered Aryan and they forced them to have kids to create these Liebensborn 
these kids that were pure master race Nazi and a lot of them were actually fucking born and if a kid was born who wasn't blonde hair blue eyed they were just killed and there was about 20,000 of these children born and when the Nazis lost the war of course these kids were treated like shit in Norway they were demonised and outcast from society and had really tough childhoods you know because they were seen as the, the seed of demons and one of these Liebensborn was it's Anna Fried from ABBA it's the you're one in ABBA who's got the red hair and she was an actual Liebensborn she, she was her ma was from Norway and her dad was a Nazi forced marriage and she was one of these kids and even to this day she's part of like a group of other Liebensborn where they're trying to just get themselves recognised and to address she had a horrible childhood you know she had a very very tough childhood because of how she was born Um, but yeah that's the that's the mad batshit crazy fucking Nazis and that was my hot take that connects a jacket to a Nazi eugenics programme that I promised you last week but I was too drunk there was no way I was remembering all that information on cans that was a lot of information there so it's time for the ocarina pause, is it? The ocarina pause, it's a staple of this podcast where I play a Spanish clay whistle for a short duration of time and while this clay whistle is playing there is a, a chance that a digital advert may be inserted. So the ocarina pause, it allows you to preempt it so you don't get a shock if you do hear an advert. And if you don't hear an advert, then brilliant, you get to hear an ocarina. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That was the ocarina pause. Um, what else? Oh yes. So, like, a lot of this podcast was about just artists, artists supporting themselves. I'm happy to say, for like, for what am I at this for? Eighteen years. Eighteen years. 
of a, being a, a creator of art for the first time in those 18 years this year is the first time where I actually know where my income is coming from at the end of the month I, I confidently know I'm getting paid at the end of the month and the reason is is because of you the listener via the Patreon account this podcast goes out for free you can listen to this for free but if you enjoy it um, a, a lot of people go I'll give Blind Boy the price of a pint once a month for fucking five hours of free content. So if you enjoy the podcast and you want to keep supporting me, if you enjoy my art and want to support me financially, give me the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee, please, on the Patreon account, which is patreon.com forward slash the Blind Boy podcast. And... If you don't want to, you can't afford it, you want to listen to for free, keep doing that. That's fine. Anyone can listen. It's a voluntary donation. It's a, a soundness model. Um, also, please subscribe to the podcast. Give it a rating, leave a review, and recommend it to people. That's hugely important to me. Um, especially if you're not Irish. If you're living in, in England or fucking America or Canada recommend the podcast on your social media to your friends and let it grow because that's what I want if you're enjoying it um, that's how you can kind of genuflect or show a bit of fucking gratitude or back if you're actually enjoying the podcast and if you're not just tell me to fuck off that's fine so what do we do now I'm going to take a few questions off of you so two weeks ago I said to you I'd be getting a lot of requests for not just for you to be able to ask questions but for like an anonymous agony ant type of thing where you can give me personal problems I don't know who the fuck you are and you know as simple as that so you can say what you want and I couldn't figure out a way to do it so I suggested Snapchat because Snapchat's kind of anonymous because people don't use their real names in it and messages disappear so I gave you the rubber banded snapchat which is rubber bandits one all lowercase and amongst the willies boobs and photographs of drugs that people just send at one in the morning because that's what snapchat fucking is um, there were some actually some, some agony ant type questions in there which I will read so this person, I don't even know their name, so it doesn't matter. Let's just call him Kevin. Kevin isn't their name. Could be anything. Alright, bio, here's one for the agony uncle bit. I've been with my partner for three years. We have a flat together. We share everything. I rely on her a lot and her on me. I think I'm falling out of love with her though. I'm looking at others with a view to leaving her, but my life would be fucked if I did. Am I staying with her because I love her or because I need to? I reckon I do love her, but I'm not sure if we're both happy and that we are actually good for one another. Jesus, man. Let's see. Can I see what time he sent that? Fuck, there's no time. 12.34am. Okay. 12.34am. That, to me, would suggest a time, maybe a couple of cans and a bit of honesty. Well, Kevin, or whatever your name is, 
I'd say, man, you're fucking after answering your own questions there and you're just looking for validation. Um, I tell you what's not a fucking good thing, you know, if you're saying that you're, you know, you're living, you're staying with somebody because you're kind of financially dependent and you're three years together and you're thinking of fucking other bures and you're saying like, Am I staying with her because I love her, because I need to? They're queer old questions to be asking yourself, you know? What I would suggest, alright? If you don't want to completely fuck it up and throw it away, the only rational piece of information, the only thing that you can actually do, practically, is to actually, like, don't run off with another bure, because that completely fucks things up maybe say some shit to her have a talk I like do you talk about this that's the thing is this a complete silence within you and you're just getting on with your life and you don't actually speak about this or maybe it communicates itself through passive aggressive arguments and you're unhappy you know what would happen if you actually said this and suggested that maybe if it's possible what if you lived apart for a bit? And if you live apart, surely will you not know the answer then? Because then what you're saying there is, is I don't know if we're in love. I think I'm dependent on her financially or she's dependent on me. If you're living apart, and if you can, maybe give that a lash. Three years is a long time. Um, I mean, when it comes to fucking... There's only one thing you want. In a partner. No matter what your sex is. Have they got a set of genitals that you're interested in? And. Are they your best friend? If they didn't have those genitals. Would they be your best friend? If if sex was out of the question. Would this person be your best friend? That's the question you got to ask yourself. And if you can find that. If you can find somebody who. Is your best friend regardless of sex or anything like that then that's a good thing and you should hold on to that and another good thing to look at too because people always try and find other people based on interests and shit you know like oh this person I like punk music and this person likes punk music too we must we'll definitely get along with each other it doesn't work like that to be honest, the only thing that truly unites people, and it doesn't matter about careers or interests or anything, how much time together do you spend laughing? Alright? Not poking fun at each other, but both collectively roaring laughing. Right? Like you would do with a best friend. Because that's the thing with human friendships. Like, human friendships are... The thing that unites people is sense of humour. That's what unites friends. If you look at, you know, when you were back in school and your collection of friends, you've all had different interests, but your friends group is, what do we laugh at together? Ask yourself that question. How much time are you spending laughing about the same shit? And did you ever laugh about the same shit? Um, Because three years is a long time. Do you know? And... If it's just your Mickey, cop on to yourself. If it's literally just, I could be a fucking other bures, then maybe you're not ready for a big long relationship. 
Um, but be cautious. Be cautious. Someone else's heart and feelings are at stake. So handle it fucking responsibly. And the worst thing, the worst thing you can be doing is not addressing it. Okay? Not naming it. Not speaking about it in a compassionate fashion. Being cautious that you're not hurting the other person's feelings. Opening up a genuine dialogue around it so that... Name the question. What you never said as well is how often are you riding? Do you know? Are you are you hardly ever riding each other? That's not great. Name that. Speak about that. Don't allow the problem bubble underneath as this unspoken nonsense. Do you know? This silence that sublimates itself into toxic behaviour. Because again, taking it back to transaction analysis, you'll probably just repeat whatever you saw your parents doing. Do you know? But best of luck with that one. Right, of another anonymous one. What's the crack? I know I'm a bit late to the party here, but I utterly enjoyed the podcast on Ego States a week ago. I relate to you a lot, particularly what you said about being on the lower end of the social groups at 18. I'm turning 19 next week, and over the past year and the past few months... In particular, I've been clawing my way out of a toxic friendship whereby others depend and even seek my own poor self-esteem and perceived low social standing. The self-scripts you spoke about helped me explain um, why these few people will never see me as their equal and why my character threatens their story and their egos. Now I'm feeling better than ever. And that's largely down to facing the fear that was instilled in me by many sources, including these friendships, such as embarrassment and loneliness. I love to hear you speak about fear and its role, if any, in your road to good mental health. Love the podcast, by the way, it's good shit. Thank you very much for that. Do you know what? I'm fucking glad to hear that the Transaction Analysis podcast has been helping you kind of grow. So what you're asking is, I'd love to hear you speak about fear and its role, if any, in your road to good mental health. Well, it depends what you mean. What do you mean by fear? You can find a power in fear. Do you know? No, <clears throat> it's worth noting fear is separate to anxiety. Um, it's something I'm going to cover in the future when I do a cognitive behavioural therapy or an emotional intelligence podcast, but... Fear and anxiety are two different things. Anxiety is what would be classed as an irrational emotion. Anxiety is an over-exaggerated, unnecessary response to a stimulus. It's not based in reality. Fear is an appropriate response because some shit is frightening and fear is how you respond to it. And with healthy and unhealthy emotions, anxiety is unhealthy. So there's very little value in it. You want to try and eradicate anxiety or not have that as your go-to emotion. But fear, unavoidable. There's power in the healthy emotions, even if they're negative. Because fear is negative. Like You don't want to be fearful all the time. But because it's real and it can often be healthy as a reaction, there's power and meaning in it. So for me, overcoming anxiety for me was about recognizing and acknowledging fearful situations recognizing when fear is an appropriate response to a stimulus um if that was a fear of failure we'll say or a fear of 
that I'm not using my time properly. A fear of not being my best self. What I often do in that situation is, is always never give in to fear. Always challenge it. Now it depends what the fear is. I'm not talking about fear as an appropriate response to a physical threat. That's different. That's when you're in physical danger. But if the fear is I will fail or I'm afraid to try because I won't be good enough. Always challenge that fear. And ask yourself when you're challenging it, what's the worst that can happen? And it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. And when you challenge a fear, even if you make a bollocks of it and it actually does fuck up and you do fail or you're not as good as you thought you were, when you challenge that fucking fear and do it anyway, it's a cliche, feel the fear and do it anyway. Every fucking time you do that, you grow as a human being. You become stronger. Your self-esteem grows, your confidence. But always challenge fears when the consequence of it isn't uh, utterly ridiculous. Like if the consequence is losing your fucking job, if the consequence is ending up out on the street or in physical danger, then assess it a bit more properly. But if the fear is a threat to your self-esteem, a threat to your identity, a threat to your sense of self, then fucking do it. Do it. Nothing wrong with that. Not humiliation, but being humbled. In fact, actively fucking encourage it. Whatever in your life today you are afraid of doing, it could be... What? Do you know what fucking... Do you know what's a big fear? A big fear that a lot of people have, and I used to have it. Huge thing. Fear of conflict. Massive thing. And me, over the years, challenging my own fear of conflict has been a massive growth. And fear of conflict... Challenging the fear of conflict is a key component of becoming assertive. Now, what's fear of conflict? It's, I don't know, you're, 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 one of your housemates isn't doing the dishes. You know, this is where these passive-aggressive notes come from, you know. Someone in the house isn't doing dishes, so you write a note on the fridge. Like, that's, that's, a, that, that's an unhealthy response to the emotion of fear. When we write these passive-aggressive notes, uh, I noticed the dishes weren't clean today, or whatever. You're giving in to the feeling of fear and it actually makes... What you're scared of there is, is conflict. You're scared of going to your housemate and assertively saying to them in person. That over text doesn't count because you can text somebody and that again removes yourself from the situation of conflict. But the fear is I'm going to speak to my housemate and I'm going to approach them about doing the dishes and what you're scared of is too much emotion coming out you're scared of either I'm afraid of getting too angry or I'm afraid of getting too sad or I'm afraid of it being too awkward and that can be fucking terrifying because if you don't have a solid grounding and sense of self that's actually really scary because you don't know how you're going to react but do it anyway and do it assertively you know again take in the transaction analysis shit that I was talking to your person in the the person in the house isn't cleaning the dishes. You don't go to them and say, "Clean the fucking dishes." You go to them and you go, 
look, wh- why why are the dishes not clean? I cleaned it three or four times this week. Use open questioning. That's what psychotherapists do. You approach the person with a question uh, that doesn't have a yes or no answer. And the only answer that person can give is an honest appraisal or reflection of their behaviour. So, why are the dishes in a pile like that? And what's the person going to say? They can either go complete into their child ego state and say, fuck off. Or they can go, I didn't have time. And then you say, well, you know, I cleaned the dishes last week. Would it be okay if you do it this week? Or do you know what? Can we work out a system? Can we work out a system? Because I think what the problem is here is that we don't really have rules around who should clean the dishes and whatever. And I'd hate for it to start, you know, causing a fight between us or something. And what you've done there is you've approached the person in the adult ego state. Conflict resolution. But I guarantee you, whoever's listening to this, 90% of you have some source of tension in your life with another person and you want to approach them about it, but you're afraid of the conflict, even over something shitty and small. And what you're scared of is bursting into tears or bursting out in anger and it doesn't have to be that way actively confront that fear and speak to that person and ground yourself beforehand so you don't get too angry or you don't get too subservient approach them like an adult and an adult is only concerned with the issue at hand it's not about winning or losing it's it's about the fucking dishes if you do that fuck me the rest of your week will feel amazing I promise you that but every time you avoid it and don't uh, embrace the fear of conflict every time you avoid that you become more and more afraid and fear of conflict and avoiding it in my personal experience can over time be detrimental for self esteem because you start to feel like you can't uh, assert yourself with other people and then you start being subservient around them I don't know if I answered that question properly but that's my own little uh, thesis on, on fear. Well, it's not mine. It's taken from psychology. Um, that's, two, that's two agony and questions with long answers. And we're 73 minutes now, so I'll leave you at that. You gorgeous boys and girls. Enjoy yourselves. Do you know what? Do something nice for yourself this week. Be sound to somebody. Be sound to yourself. Have some crack. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Um, I don't have a clue what next week's podcast will be about having a clue I'll figure it out during the week alright God bless Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.